0: You know, there's all kind of commandments in the Scripture, but the most often repeated command in all of Scripture is "Fear not." Don't be afraid, right. and that's why we felt it was important uh, to uh, to be able to talk about uh, the the calling for Christian believers to have courage. And that might seem like a, a little bit of an unusual uh, calling. Uh, here we are, very comfortable in 21st century. North America. I don't know how many of you guys had to fight off bandits, thieves, brigands, or robbers, uh, you know, on your way here, or that you had to worry about, you know, the, you know, the ox falling into a ditch before you came to church on Sunday. So you begin to think, well, you know, in our life and in our time, you know, what is it that you know requires courage? And you know, we really hope to be able to demonstrate some of that. But uh, I do want to say this: it is truly countercultural in our day and age to live a life free from fear. It is truly countercultural. cultural uh, uh, Let's just take uh, one of my most recent favorites, the swine flu, right? <laughs> Run for your lives. Here comes the swine flu. It somehow started in Mexico and, you know, it's like the killer bees 20 years ago. And, you know, there's always something that starts somewhere else and it's going to get to you. And, oh my gosh, we're all going to die, <laughs> right? And, you know, could you just four weeks ago, five weeks ago, could you turn on the news without hearing about the swine flu? And you know, though this wasn't just any flu. No, 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 no. This was a flu that would co- combine uh, pork and fowl because it had avian uh, strains in it uh, and human strains in it. And this was going to be finally the super flu, the super killer, you know, that would, you know, be like the great um, uh, influenza uh, epidemic of uh, whatever it was, 1918 or something like that. Run for your lives. Who here got the swine flu? Who here, if you had to travel, actually gave some thought to what our vice president said, which is don't get into a big aluminum can where you are, you know, con- con- you know, confined with everybody else and breathe the same air that they're breathing. And I mean, even at the highest levels of government, you know, you had second highest level of government, you had somebody saying, listen, I'm telling my family, don't go anywhere, don't do anything. And, and you know, we can laugh now because the, the threat, such as it is, uh, is past. but, um, it's just one in many, many things. Do you know that economists have predicted 13 of the last five recessions? <laughs> right? You know? you know, you just let a little bit of a dip in, a, in, a, you know, in the employment figures, a little bit of a rise in the unemployment figures. And, you know, the, the, the reason is bad news sells. And it really is, as the people of God, countercultural to live free from fear, without a doubt. Uh, and um, we want to talk about uh, we want to talk about courage uh, because God delights in choosing weak people who me I'm not courageous. God delights in choosing weak people and doing exploits uh, through them. And last week's message, just as a quick review, uh, was uh, from Gideon uh, in judges chapter six and seven. Last week's message was about Gideon's courage. and uh, Pastor Adam uh, told us this. he said, God is calling us and by that he specifically had a word for our local church. God is calling the vineyard in Campbellsville to a new place of courage and demonstration. The driving theological motivation behind the vineyard movement and the vineyard here uh, is that the kingdom of God, the way things are done in, in heaven is breaking into the here and the now. The kingdom of God is busting into our lives. The powers of the age to come, are somehow tearing open the heavens and breaking into our lives. And that's manifested in peace. And that's manifested in uh, the comfort that comes through the Holy Spirit. But it's also manifested in miraculous healing and intervention and miraculous financial supply. in, In every way that you could imagine that heaven is a good place, the powers of the age to come, that's a Pauline phrase, are breaking into the here and now. But God is calling us, especially as a local congregation, to a new place of courage and of demonstration in that. And uh, Gideon was a great example. You know, God delights in choosing the weak. Uh, angelic visitation, here comes an angel. You know, hey, mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, who, me, right? And, uh, and then we, we went through the story of Gideon and we saw how God chose him. And uh, specifically one of the points that Adam wanted to make was that the cure for fear is God's presence and our obedience combined. The cure for fear. Do you you struggle with being afraid of stuff? The cure for fear is God's presence and our obedience, and that's what's going to equal courage for us. And then the final point that Adam made was that throughout the Old Testament, you get the presence of the Holy Spirit as an exceptional event. It, you know, Time and time again in the Old Testament, from Moses to Gideon to King David to, you know, to the prophets, it's always the Spirit of the Lord kind of overtook me and then thus and such happened. And Adam's point as he was concluding the first of these two weeks is, is that if the Spirit came on Gideon and all those good things happened, how much more should we who have the Holy Spirit resident in our hearts be able to walk in kingdom demonstration and proclamation and, and a courageous uh, declaration of the kingdom because we have the benefit of the spirit beat in our hearts all the time. In other words, and here's part of the challenge, in other words, all of the wiggy stuff, all of the incredible mind-blowing stuff, all of the stuff that you read about in the Old Testament was by its definition exceptions to the rule it was God granting the Spirit in limited measure to people in a given time. But we are the people of the Spirit. We are the Israel of God. And we are that Spirit whom he jealously desires when we, when we did our intercession time. And so as we looked at the, the story of Gideon, that was part of what was going on. Now, um, Gideon is, uh, is good Sunday school fare. How many of you learned about Gideon when you were, you know, in Sunday school? Right? And Gideon is good Bible story, fair. And, and I always hate that phrase Bible story. I hate the phrase Bible story because it carries with it the connotation that it's a, a harmless story that you tell, you know, to either old people or to very young people. And that it's a story when in fact it is an account of something that actually happened. God took Somebody who was so afraid that they were hiding in a wine press, which is actually a pretty small affair, threshing wheat, where you need a, actually a lot of room and you need the wind to blow the chaff away, because he was afraid of the of the you know, the bandits and the marauding hordes, you know, of the Hun and a bunch of other Midianites, you know, that were coming after him. God took somebody that was afraid like that and used him, to deliver Israel. It wasn't a metaphorical deliverance. It was an actual deliverance. And here were the numbers. 130,000 Midianites or other countries just directly to the east of Israel against an assembled group of 35,000 Israelites. But then God said, no, 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 no. Let's just ask anybody who's afraid. Uh, if you're afraid, go home. And in one day, 22,000 Israelites went home. So he went from thirty-five k to, uh, well, what's the math on that? am trying to carry the one, to 13K, all right? And the simple question was, is how many of you guys are afraid? Roughly two-thirds said, yeah, you know, feats, don't fail me now, I'm out of here. And then God said to Gideon, that's not good enough, and the number got weaned down from the 13 to the 3,000, from the 3,000 to the 300, and then the battle plan was simply this. Here's how you're going to rout the enemy. I want you to take a giant clay pot and a torch with you and go surround the enemy's camp. I'm kind of hoping for submachine guns from the future. I'm kind of hoping for, you know, a little bit of Terminator salvation. I'm looking for something that's bigger and badder than that. But this is the way that God works. And it's not just a Bible story. It was an account of something that actually happened. And I wanted to read to you a quote from one of my favorite authors. I think probably C.S. Lewis Is my favorite author, but uh, a modern author still alive today, Dallas Willard, is is an incredible uh, source of encouragement and instruction to me. And um, I have actually either given this book away or loaned it to people probably five different times. Uh, And uh, whoever it was uh, that actually went and bought me a new copy and put it in my office, thank you. One miraculously appeared. Um, I have a feeling there was probably human agency involved. If you're here today, thank you for that. But I want, to, I want to read a quote from Dallas Willard just to finish up Adam's message. Uh, and this is what Dallas Willard says in this incredible book called Hearing God. He says, The humanity of Moses, of David, Elijah, of Paul or Peter, and even Jesus Christ himself teaches us this one vital lesson. Our humanity will not in itself prevent us from knowing or interacting with God just as they did, okay? Whether it's Gideon, or whether it's Moses, David, or Elijah, or Peter, or Paul, or even Jesus, our humanity does not prevent us from interacting with God just as they did. And in fact, Willard says, the open secret of many Bible-believing churches is that really only a very small percentage of members study the Bible with even the degree of interest, intelligence, or joy that they bring to bear on their favorite newspaper or magazine. And in my opinion, says Willard, based upon considerable experience, this is primarily because they do not know and are not taught how to understand the experience of biblical characters in terms of their own experience." You see when we come to the scriptures and we read about Gideon is it a nice story is it something that's just designed to encourage us in general or is there revelation from God that this is the way that God works with people When we read the account of Gideon can we imagine ourselves can you Andrew can you imagine yourself down in a wine press because you're afraid and an angelic visitation declaring that you have a destiny as a mighty man of valor and can you imagine struggling with a trying to hear the voice of god and b then taking steps of obedience and faith each one of us need as we read the biblical account whether it's gideon or whether it's in the gospels whether it's in the book of acts or whether it's the life of king david these are people just like we are elijah was a man just like us that's what it says in uh, james chapter five isn't that right Really? A guy whose prayer life was so good it could disrupt the weather patterns for three and a half years. Elijah was a man just like us. Do we really believe that? How about it? Now, Elijah was a man just like us. He was uh, easily frightened, given to bouts of depression, liked to run away and hide and say, I'm the only one. Now, that sounds a little more just like us, doesn't it? But he's also the one who called down fire from heaven. He's also the one that raised the dead. He's also the one that miraculously increased the supply of food. Elijah was a man just like us. Why is it that we are so quick to apprehend the the faults of those that are in the scriptures? And for some reason we consign the dynamic supernatural interaction of God. And we consign that to Bible story. All right, well, Adam didn't say all that, but I said all that just uh, to uh, review Gideon's message. Here's the formula. I was not very good at math, but this one is easy enough. What is courage? Courage is the combination of obedience and faith in God. Obedience plus faith equals courage. That is the biblical definition of what it means to have the heart of God inside of you. And this, it's kind of a word that comes to us, at least in English, from the, the old French. And it means that your, that your heart has become old in a good way. Because you've walked with God so long that you know the ways of God. So courage is obedience plus faith. And so uh, there's the review of last week. And uh, I, want to, uh, I want to look at a passage in the New Testament, since Pastor Adam used the Old Testament passage. If you brought a Bible today, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. Um, while you're turning there, let me ask you this. Who here knows where baseball's Hall of Fame is located? Somewhere in Baltimore. That's not true. <laughs> Cooperstown, that's right. Okay, how about football's Hall of Fame? Canton, Ohio. Okay, how about the Hockey Hall of Fame? The answer is who cares about hockey, okay? That's the answer there, okay? Who cares about hockey? Um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Cleveland, what? Cleveland Rocks, right? Where is Faith's Hall of Fame? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. That's where you're turning right now. It's the Hall of Fame for Faith. Now, from time to time, I've got the privilege of teaching over at Campbellsville University. And um, I, when, I, when I do a test, I like to put in some questions that give uh, a student a break from the test and just try to loosen them up a little bit. And when I teach New Testament, that's actually one of the questions that I have is, Faith's Hall of Fame is located A, in Cooperstown, B, in Canton, Ohio, C, in Cleveland, or D, Hebrews 11. And wouldn't you know it, I've had students that have selected Cleveland? <laughs> Cleveland? Now, you know, that could be making fun of the students, but what it probably says is, well, what the heck was the teacher doing the whole semester? Right? All right, but we're looking today in Hebrews chapter 11, which I guess I should have been turning to as well. We're looking in Hebrews chapter 11. It's faith's Hall of Fame. and let's keep in mind uh, what uh, Dallas Willard said better than I'm capable of, that every single person that's in this chapter are people who are just like us that if, if If you wanted to spend a week 's Bible study or a month 's Bible study just going through the names of these people that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter eleven, you could say, "Gee, what would my life have been like if I was Moses and I saw a bush that was burning and it wasn 't consumed? What would my life have been like if I was Abraham or you know on and on and on like that and so there 's this list of uh, faith 's hall of fame and it 's got you know it 's got all the big guys in it it 's got abraham and it 's got Moses and You know It's got got everybody that's famous. But then right at the end, and this is the passage that I want to look at, starting in verse 32, the writer, or maybe this was an old sermon, the writer or the speaker of these words is running out of space because Faith's Hall of Fame has had a long time to have inductees. And starting in verse 32, the author says, Well, what more shall I say? I don't even have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, who became uh, powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put into prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. And they wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. All of these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Lord Jesus, would you come through your spirit and illuminate what you want to to be made bright in our hearts today? Would you cause the light of your countenance to fall not on the printed ink on the page, but would you cause the light of your countenance to fall into my heart? Shine where you want, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You know, I, I, I always, when I read this passage, especially the, the last part, you know, I could, you know, I could follow with shut the mouths of lions. I, I think that's, you know, who's that? That's Nebuchadnezzar or somebody. No, it's Daniel He's, or the angel. I don't know. You know what I'm saying. It's Daniel. I'm, I'm teasing. I knew who it was. Okay. Um, is, it, is it Daniel? Yeah, okay. Uh, you, know, you know, I tried to follow along in you know, this list and figure out who's who. But something happens in this list. And the list changes from notable biblical figures to people that, you know, maybe we don't know about. You know, people that were tortured and refused release so that they could obtain a better resurrection? Who is that? You know, some biblical scholars say, well, it might be from the, the apocryphal books that, you know, like the, the Maccabees. There's a famous passage in, in one of the Maccabees books about, you know, this family with seven brothers and not one of them wanted their release. They wanted to embrace torture because they wanted to be faithful to the God of their fathers. And, you know, it says people were sawn in two and it's not in the book of Isaiah, but the tradition at least says that one of the evil kings uh, had Isaiah sawn in too. But I've I'm, I'm always been fascinated with that the, the biblical narrative changes from identifiable people to unidentifiable people. Maybe it was Isaiah. Maybe it was these brothers in the, in the book of Maccabees. Or maybe it was perhaps, and this is just my own take on it, you know, I don't know that it'll ever get published, is that, it, that the author may have had people in mind People, you know, he's moving from the Old Testament witness to the New Testament witness. You know, there were, there were Roman emperors that probably, at least two of them before the time that Hebrews was written, Roman emperors who were beginning to persecute both Jews and Christians alike. But the, the, the point I want to get across is that the biblical narrative moves from the really famous people to that wing of Faith's Hall of Fame that might be less known. And you remember, I want to try to get across to us that normal, everyday people have the opportunity to interact with God the way that the people in the book have an opportunity to interact with God. So today, I want to share with you two stories not from the Bible. We're going to come back to this passage. Not from the Bible, but from uh, our lifetimes or just recently before our lifetimes, depending on how old you are. And the first person that I want to talk about, keeping this passage in mind, we'll come back to it, is, is a woman named Corrie Ten Boom. How many of you have ever heard of Corey Ten Boom? Leave your hands up because I'm actually curious. Not a good 80%. Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch woman uh, who died at the age of 91. She died uh, in the in, uh, early 1990s. And she led about as ordinary a life as you can imagine. There, I, I can't imagine a life more ordinary than this. She was single all of her life. Uh, she, um, she lived with her father and her older sister and they had a little bitty watch repair shop in, uh, in Holland, uh, in a small town. Uh, they, they were Christians, they, they loved Jesus and they fed the poor. They felt that it was their duty to feed the poor so they showed mercy to poor people. It, it was an ordinary life in every respect. They were good, small town, church going people. Until 1940, when the Nazis swept through uh, all of the low countries of, you know, Brussels and Belgium and the Netherlands. The Nazis swept through in 1940. Corrie Ten Boom was 48 years old. Her prospects for marriage at 48, single, probably not the best at that age. And now the world was being engulfed in war and she had led the most ordinary life. Do you know what ordinary people do? When you know when a, when an invading force you know comes through, you keep your head down, you stay out of trouble. They practiced feeding the poor beforehand, so they practiced helping refugees, people that you know needed food as they were passing through, trying to get away from the Nazis. Uh, they they practiced the ordinary kindness that you would normally consider. But in 1941, the Nazis began rounding up the Jewish people in the Low Countries. And by 1942, Corey and her older sister and her father had joined the resistance movement. Now, can you imagine, you know, a- applying for the resistance movement? In walks an 80-year-old father with one daughter who is in her 50s and another daughter who is 49 turning 50 saying, we are the resistance. Anybody here see Terminator Salvation? You know, we are the resistance. What a load of uh, horse dookie. Um, <laughs> This is the real resistance. An aged man in his 80s who was a shopkeeper and his two spinster daughters say to the resistance, How can we help smuggle Jewish people out of Holland and get them to safety? And in their home, they actually built a false wall, just, uh, it was in centimeters when I read it, but it was about this long. Okay, they built a false wall to create a, a long, narrow closet that you could only get through by crawling on your hands and knees through a linen closet underneath and up into this, in, into this place. And uh, let's go to the next slide, Jess. This ordinary life turned courageous, and 800 or more Jewish people were saved from the capture of the Nazis. Now, if you had asked Corey Ten Boom, are you courageous? Is God calling you to anything that is great? The answer would have been no. The answer would have been no before the war, but the answer also would have been no during the war. It was an extension of what they had already done. They, were, they loved the Lord. They fed the poor as part of their Christian duty. And when circumstances changed, that until on the previous slide, when circumstances changed, it was merely an extension of the life they were already living. It was an extension of that life. Well, in 1944, after two years of working with the resistance, she was captured, her sister was captured, her father was captured when a neighbor turned them in for smuggling Jews. Some neighbor ratted them out. And even as the Nazis broke into this little bitty house, and that's the actual house uh, where this happened, that was a watch shop downstairs. Even as the Nazis broke in, everybody in the household, and in this particular time it was six Jewish people that were guests plus two resistance members who were taking care of the six Jewish people, they had rehearsed how they could get to that hiding place within the house in one minute or less. If the Nazis came in the middle of the night, the first thing you did was you got out of bed and you turned your mattress over so that the the heat from your body was on the underside of the mattress so that if the Nazis came and felt on a mattress, you know, they couldn't say, well, somebody was sleeping here. I, the bed's warm. And they all got into that closet, and the last six Jewish people plus two resistance members actually were never captured. But Cory Ten Boom and her sister and her father were taken into custody because they had extra ration cards. You got to feed them. You got to be able to deal in ration cards. And so they were captured and they were put into prison. Her dad, in his 80s, survived 10 days. Didn't even make it to a concentration camp. And when they threatened him with torture, he said it would be a privilege to die for God's chosen people. 10 days later, he was dead. Corey Tenboom lost her older sister in, uh, in the concentration camp. And Corey was the one who constantly complained about how life sucked because of the situation that they were in. It was the older sister that was filled with faith. Uh, There's a wonderful book called The Hiding Place. There's a movie that the Billy Graham Association put out called The Hiding Place. And what she learned was that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And so first they rescued Jewish people from Nazi occupation. Then they began to witness to Jewish people in concentration camps and witness to German guards in that concentration camp. She lost her father. She lost her sister. She lost uh, one of her cousins. And when she was rescued from the concentration camp, she engaged in Christian ministry for 33 years. Now, at this point, she's in her early 50s. She's the daughter of a watchmaker, a spinster that lived in a small town that was a shopkeeper, and God still had 30 years of ministry, 33 to be exact, 33 years of ministry for her. See, this is the kind of courageous life that we are called to. See, it started with, there's the, uh, in, uh, in the Gideon story, in Judges, if you're taking notes, in Judges chapter 6, verse 14, there's this phrase that says, Gideon, go in the strength that you have. And the Gideon story is how time and time and time again, he simply took one small step after another God didn't say to him, by the way, I'm going to have you take care of 130,000 Midianites through 300 soldiers. God gave him one step at a time. When God began to call uh Corrie Ten Boom to a life of courage, God didn't say, by the way, your task is going to be to save 800 people from from one of the most maniacal dictatorships of the 20th century. God didn't start with that. It was, do you love me? Will you feed the poor? Judges 6.14, go with the strength that you have and you will find that obedience plus faith will equal the courage that you need. Go with the strength that you have. Obedience plus faith right? It becomes that. So they became the resistance. They did amazing things. They had long conversations with each other. Should we lie and break one of the Ten Commandments in service of God? They determined that they would not tell a lie to anyone who asked them a question because they didn't want to break one of God's commandments. That stretches me. There's, there's one incident where they, they before they had the, the, the wall with the hiding place that they had a trap door underneath a table and the Nazis were just about to break in and one person was able to hide in the trap door underneath the table and the Nazis came in and they said, where are the Jews that you're hiding? And they looked, at, looked right at the soldier and said, under the table. And, you know, there was no tablecloth and the, the soldier just looked and said, why are you mocking me? And then he ran out. <laughs> they determined they weren't going to lie. They saw supernatural provision to take care of 800 people. You talk about your loaves and your fishes. They saw supernatural provision to take care of the the people that they had been given to take care of. They saw supernatural protection that allowed them to smuggle Bibles into a concentration camp. They saw supernatural protection by God. The supernatural flowed from their obedience and their trust in God. They weren't out for a signs and wonders ministry. They were just trying to show biblical courage, obedience plus faith, and stuff happens. And I love this quote. Before we leave Corey Ten Boom, I I, I love this quote. Corey told her older sister, she said, I'm not like you. I don't have a great faith, and I don't know if I've got the strength. If we are captured ever, if they put me into prison, I don't know if I've got the strength to be able to do it. And her older sister said this to her. Her older sister said, do you know when we were little girls and we would go on a trip and we'd have to take the train? When did Papa give you the ticket? And Corey said, well, Papa would always give me the ticket just before I got on the train. And her older sister said, so will your heavenly father give you what you need just before you need it. How many here called to save 800 people? How many here called to, to fight against an incredible, powerful uh, military force? How many here are called to join a resistance movement? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But what I do know is your heavenly Father will give you the ticket just before you need to get on the train. Corey Tenboom: she could have been in Faith's Hall of Fame. Her story is no different than Elijah or Gideon. Her story is no different at all up to and including, last note on Corey Ten Boom, in those 33 years of ministry, when she was ministering at a Lutheran church in Germany, 10 years after the war, and one of the soldiers who was a guard in the concentration camp came up to her with a big smile and said, Sister Corey, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. You and I are brother and sister now. He had been a guard in the camp, and he had been brutal. And she was immediately faced with the question of forgiveness. You know what C.S. Lewis says about forgiveness? He says forgiveness is a really good concept right up until you actually have to forgive someone. And so in her years of ministry, she too was still receiving the ticket just when she needed it. And she says she swallowed hard, she asked for the grace of God, and she embraced the man, and she felt the presence of God in a sustainable way. Filling her heart with love and affection for that person, or a timber. But you're thinking, okay, well, the world's not at war now. Uh, you know, that's a long time ago. You know, maybe Ray remembers World War II. Maybe a few people here remember <laughs> World War II. Heck, I remember the Revolutionary War, but most of us don't remember that. So I want to tell you about a guy I went to high school with. I want to tell you about my friend, Steve Pfeiffer. He's spoken here at this church, if you've been here for any length of time. And Steve, too, has lived a courageous life. Uh, You can see his story at kenyakidscan.org if you want to go to it. And, you know, here's the vitae on him. Middle-class guy, wife and two children, good church grower, worked for Oracle Corporation. At Oracle, he was a heavy hitter and was the stuff of legend. Vice presidents would call him to get stuff done when stuff couldn't get done. And he had a nice house in the suburbs, you know had a lovely yard, you know, they had a dog. You know, everything was just great, Grapevine, Texas, until they conceived their third child and the child was diagnosed in utero as having trisomy 13. It's a genetic disposition that in the happy phrases of medicine is, quote, incompatible with life. While the baby was in Nancy's womb, the doctors were saying, here's the the stats on trisomy 13. 90% of the children born with trisomy 13 do not live one hour outside the mother's womb. And of the 10% that do survive one hour outside the mother's womb, 90% of them die within 24 hours after being in the mother's womb. I called Steve. I went to high school with him back during World War II. Um, I went to... I called him, and, uh, and I said, you know, hey, do you, do you want me to come down? You know, your, your wife's getting ready to deliver. And, and he said, no. He said, I, I really want you to come down for the funeral, whenever that's going to be. A lot like, you know, what the Clements are facing. You know, there's a time for, to be born and a time to die. And Steve told me on the phone, I'll never forget it, because I, the, the feeling that I had in my chest and in my stomach, he said, you have no idea what it's like making funeral arrangements while we are finishing the decorations on the nursery for the baby. They were determined that they were going to choose life, that life and death was in the power of God's hands and no one else's hands, and they were going to welcome that baby into the world. And so they had decorated a nursery. They'd set the crib and the bassinet. Their boys were already, you know, teenagers at that point. They were getting ready to welcome that baby into the world. And the practical side of them also said, well, these are the stats, 90% within an hour, another 90% of the remaining within 24 hours. It seems like unless God intervenes, something's going to happen. Baby's going to die. Stephen Wrigley Pfeiffer was born and lived eight days. Eight days. And then he died. And uh, I went to, went to the memorial service, and uh, it, it's one of the most moving Christian testimonies to the goodness of God that I'd ever seen. The first guy got up to speak and he just simply said this, Stephen Wrigley Pfeiffer, having accomplished the mission that God gave him to do, departed the earth after eight days. And it changed my perspective on life and death forever. Just that one statement. And it was the until moment for Steve and for his wife Nancy. What do you do when your suburban life is interrupted in such a way? What do you do? Well, for them... They did what was in their power to do. How many of you know that one of the best ways to deal with grief is to look beyond yourself and to look to the needs of others? And so they did what was within their power to do. Listen, you know, this guy made a lot of money, okay? And so they said, you know what we'll do is we'll rent out the house for a year and we will go to a Christian school for the children of missionaries and we'll be dorm parents for children whose parents are serving throughout Africa. And we'll go and we'll do it for a year. It'll be the break that we need. It'll be, it'll be what we need to be able to start our life over again. Their intention was to go for one year and to be dorm parents. They weren't teachers at the school. All they did was hug on fourth graders who missed their mom and dad. And in the last month, in the last month that they were there for that first year, in that last month, a famine had become severe in Kenya and Steve visited a Kenyan school literally a hut with dirt floors and the children it was a Thursday were lying down on their side while the teacher was teaching and he said why are they lying down and the teacher said because they haven't had a meal since Monday and if they were to sit upright they would faint so we let them lie down so they can continue to learn he was just a few weeks away from finishing his one-year commitment at Rift Valley Academy. And he began to inquire, and he found out that the dropout rate at the school was 50% because as a parent, how many of you would be want to be forced with the decision, do I send my kid to get an education or do I use that kid to help forage for food so that there's enough food for the whole family to eat? Who would want that choice as a parent? So two weeks later, Steve, Nancy, their two children came back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm telling you, he was a heavy hitter. Immediately, so people from another 500 Fortune, 500, uh, yeah, Fortune 500 company uh, called him and said, we'd like to take you out to dinner, and we'd like to pr- present you with a job offer. And so it's Fortune 500, Steve's a heavy hitter. They took him to the mansion at Turtle Creek. Does that sound like Arby's or Wendy's to you? They took him to the mansion at Turtle Creek. I literally got online this week and looked at their menu and the appetizers were at $17 to $25 for the appetizers. That's as far as Steve got in the meal was the appetizers. He excused himself from the guys who had not yet put the compensation package in front of him. He went to the restroom. He washed his face. He looked in the mirror. He came out to those guys and he said, whatever your offer is, I'm sorry to have wasted your time. I'm not interested. He went home. He went to his wife and he said, we've got to go back. We've got to go back. And over the course of the last eight years, he started with one school and he had the idea that if we could guarantee a parent one square meal a day for their kid at the noon hour and tie that to going to school, the parent doesn't have to choose between education and feeding your kid. And the dropout rate went from 50% to practically zero. And the kids got fed and the kids got education. And then from that one school, which was just a couple of hundred kids, another teacher hears about it at another school and she and the principal come and say, well, what about our kids? They're just as hungry. And what about our kids from another school and from another school? And over the last eight years, that feeding ministry has gone from one school to 20,000 Kenyan children who get a meal a day at school and they stay in school and dropout rates have done the same thing. They've gone from you know, mid-double digits, 50, 40, 50, 60% down to like 1 or 0% because the parent isn't forced. And they do it in the name of Jesus. Steve's got a standard line he uses. He says, this comes from people in America who love you very much. If you had told him and his wife There at the OBGYN, the day that the trisomy 13 diagnosis was given, God is going to launch you in a ministry that will feed 20,000 kids, and you will change their lives forever. And Steve's a man of vision. He said, if I can get one generation all the way through school, we can break the back of poverty in Kenya because they will have been well-fed and well-educated, and that's the sort of thing that can change a nation. A guy from the suburbs in Dallas is talking about changing the fate of a nation and breaking the back of poverty in one nation. Will it come to pass? I don't know. And if it fails, he's failed miserably because he feeds 20,000 kids a month. Because he had an until moment. He had an until moment. Because courage, courage is obedience plus faith. He did what he was able to do. I mean, if, if you go through the grief of losing a child, isn't it good to concentrate on other people? I mean, isn't that just healthy for you? So they said, that's what we'll do, and then we'll come back and we'll go on with our lives. Their lives were changed forever. He started by feeding children in one school, and they too have had the miraculous intervention of God, the miraculous intervention of God in their ministry. And by the way, would you pray for Steve in his ministry? Would you, would you go to Kenya? Kenya, kidscan.org because for the first time in nine years with, when you're feeding 20,000 students now corrupt officials are beginning to steal the food. I mean they've distributed the food directly to the schools themselves. They've not gone through the government and just in the last month they've begun to run afoul of people that are confiscating the food from them. Would you pray for Steve and for his ministry? I, I firmly believe that I firmly believe that in faith's hall of fame, maybe sitting right next to Corey Ten Boom, you're going to find my buddy. He's just a guy. I mean, he was a knucklehead in high school. He's a smart knucklehead, but he was a knucklehead. Steve Pfeiffer. That's his story. You see, Steve's no different than Elijah. Steve's no different than Gideon. Steve's no different than anybody else all he does is he tries to obey God and he tries to do it in faith so what's that have to do with us and I told you we'd go back to Hebrews there's this amazing statement at the end of the passage that we read it's an amazing statement it's it's the very last verse in Hebrews chapter 11 in this hall of fame of faith now this is going to stretch you you're not going to believe it, and I'm going to challenge you to meditate on it all week to see if you'd believe it. You can put up the next slide, Jess, and just go to the first line. Here's, here's the first line it says, God has something better planned for us. We don't have to go any further. You could read about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, King David, Solomon. Abraham, Moses, and the testimony of the word of God is that God has something better planned for us. Do you believe it? I mean, I cry out and I say, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. The testimony of scripture for each person that's here today is that God has something better planned for us. And if that doesn't wig you out or totally... You know, fry your circuits. Then the next phrase, also in verse 40, is simply this. So that only together with us would those guys be made perfect. Do you know there is something incomplete about the life of Gideon? There's something incomplete about the life of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Solomon, Abraham, Moses. There's something so incomplete about their lives that only together with you, You and me, can they be made complete? Now, we're in a Bible-believing church. This is a Bible verse. And if we all wanted to be Sunday school-like, I could just simply say, how many of you all believe that verse? And you just put your hands up because, well, that's the answer that's expected. But in our heart of hearts, how many of us believe that God has something better planned for us? And how many of us believe that apart from us, those guys cannot be made complete. I'm telling you, the Bible will absolutely fry your circuits because this is the inspired word of God. And if I can be this bold because Pastor Adams said we were going to do this mini-series, God is calling us to a level of courage and demonstration in our community today. And apart from us, these guys can't be made complete. Lord, help me. I mean, I've been working on this message for a week and I still don't believe it. You're just hearing it for the first time. But it's true. It's true. I think the answer lies in two things. And if you're taking notes, I'll just refer to you again to, to Judges chapter 6, verse 14, which is go in the strength that you have. But then I want to give you five practical steps. I want to give you five more steps. What can I do if it's true... I don't know, is it? I, maybe. That apart from us, they're not made complete. That God has something better planned for us. What can I do? I want, to give you these, I want to give you these five steps. Five easy steps to being a courageous Christian. At bookstores everywhere next week. Number one, recognize around you the culture of fear because it's everywhere. Recognize the culture of fear Around you, Listen, it was fun to tease about the swine flu, but how many of us find ourselves afraid of the future? How many of us are worried about what tomorrow's going to bring? How many of us actually live with fear as a part of our lives? And you might say, well, I'm not being fearful, I'm just being practical. I'm all for being practical, but we need to recognize that the water we swim in The the wetness we don't even feel contains fear. Fear sells, fear motivates, fear is all around us. We need to recognize that. We need to specifically ask the Holy Spirit to show us where we are fearful. Was Jesus just kidding when he said, take no thought for tomorrow? There's another one. Maybe we should do a whole series of Bible verses that absolutely freak you out. Take no thought for tomorrow consider the lilies consider the birds of the air well somebody's got to be doing the planning i agree with that just shouldn't be me or you we need to recognize the culture of fear that's around us it's everywhere it's it's fear for the health of our children it's fear for provision for tomorrow It's fear for what's going to happen in our community. It's fear for whether or not our kids will stay on the straight and narrow. It's fear everywhere you turn and it is antithetical to the kingdom of God. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and sound mind and discipline. That's what God has given us. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Two things. Number one, it's in the Holy Spirit. And number two, two two-thirds of the kingdom of God is peace and joy. Righteousness we'll figure out as we go. Recognize the culture of fear. You okay with this? I think it's the word of God for us. Number two, train yourself to hear the voice of God. In every example that we get in Faith's Hall of Fame, in every example that you know Adam used for us last week in talking about Gideon, there was a conversational relationship with God God is not put off by your doubts. God will continue to engage in dialogue with you if you are just flat out honest with him and say, I just don't see it. He doesn't turn his back on you. But we we must train ourselves to hear the voice of God. The truth is, is that we've trained ourselves to hear a lot of voices. We've trained ourselves to hear the voice of celebrity. We've trained ourselves to hear the voices of fear. We've trained ourselves to hear the voice of our own appetites or our own desires. We need to train ourselves to hear the voice of God. I could give you five easy steps to hear the voice of God or that'll be another series. Suffice it to say, oh, yeah. Oh, let me recommend Dallas Willard, Hearing God. Okay? Okay? Honestly, I think I've either lent or given that book away five times because it's that good. Train yourself to hear the voice of God. Number three, treasure his presence. The biblical example is that the presence of God is always behind the courage of the believer. The presence of God is always behind the courage of the believer. You know, What kind of crazy believer would say, hey, there's a bunch of Philistines up on that hill. I figure me and my armor bearer, we'll just walk on up and say, y'all want to come down and fight? And if they say yes, we'll know that God is with us. You know, who thinks of stuff like that? Well, in this case, Jonathan, the best friend of David, the king of Israel. You know, Uh, we need to treasure his presence because it's his presence that will give us the faith to obey it's his presence that will give us the faith to obey. Uh, wh- how many of you remember two Octobers ago, Walking Evans was here? Did, did, did you catch the example he gave of where he just sat in a room and he turned everything off and he said, Lord, I just want to feel your presence. That's all I want. And he said he sat there in silence. He was in his apartment. And he said he felt a little tingling in one finger. And he said, is that you, God? He said, I want... I mean, we're talking about tactile, feeling the presence of God. Treasure the presence. And he sat there until that tingling made its way up his arm and across his chest and down the other arm until he felt like he was... It's, it's entirely subjective. It's entirely what he felt. But he knew the presence of God was in the room. He said it took him three hours. He said, but that was the first time. Because over the years he had trained, the ensuing years after that one experience, he had trained himself to treasure the presence and to be able to turn into the presence. The Apostle Paul, when he was preaching, said, He is not far from any of us, but that we would simply turn and encounter him. Where's the presence of God? Well, theologically, God's everywhere. But how many of us would like to be able to turn in a moment in a day and experience his presence? If you've ever encountered it once, don't settle for anything less. Don't let the voices of fear, don't let the appetites of the flesh, don't let the busyness of life come in between you and training yourself to hear his voice or treasuring his presence. We go after what we treasure. Number three, practice obedience. Practice obedience. If I could say so, not that I'm probably the only person ever to write that phrase, but I like it. You just practice it. You know, how do you learn to stay back on a curveball? Well, you look at a hundred curveballs until you figure stay back, stay back, stay back, now go. Right? Right? You don't hit the curveball the first time you ever see it, but you practice. We can practice obedience. Is God in heaven ready to smite? Is he, you know, smite me, thou mighty smiter? You didn't obey fully. That's not the God we serve. The God that we serve says, practice obedience, grow in faith and obedience. We can practice obedience. It can be as simple as Corey Ten Boom feeding the poor. It can be as simple as Steve and Nancy saying, Hey, we've got some money in the bank. Let's take a year off and we'll go look beyond ourselves. Practice obedience. And then, number five, because in the story of Corey Tenboom or the story of my friend Steve, there was an until moment. Leave the until moment to God. It might be a world war. It might be a family tragedy or it might be something else. I don't know what the until moment is, but even now, and you could say, look, I'm 51 or I'm 71 or I'm 21. Let God determine the until moment that allows you to combine faith and obedience to live courageously. Pastor Adam's right. In Campbellsville, the population of Taylor County is an unreached people group. Because we have people with Bible theology and they're not experiencing the righteousness, peace, and joy of the kingdom of God. They're not experiencing the breakthrough of the powers of the age to come into the present. They're not experiencing the, the let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want to be called to missions? We've got a great mission field right around us. Let God determine the until. How many of us would like to be courageous in God? at least one or two. He calls us to a courageous life. We can be students, we can be teachers, we can be shop owners, or we can be day laborers. We can be retired or we can be newborn. And there is a place to walk in a courageous demonstration of the kingdom of God. If you're on the ministry team, you can kind of make your way up, well, you can make your way up here. And, uh, but I want to take just a moment as well to maybe just ask the Lord to minister to us.